0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the current state of freedom of the seas, Russia and Belarus getting ever closer towards a complete union, and a new law in Britain that may be stirring up trouble in Ireland. All that and more coming up. fire news. So, Ukraine has withdrawn troops from the Lysychansk uh, area. And so basically what happened there was sort of a, um, Basically what I mentioned before with regards to the current Russian, what appears to be the current Russian tactic, preferred tactic for dealing with Ukrainian troops, which is where they basically surround the troops on three sides, and then just hammer away with artillery. And Till the troops in the region have, the Ukrainian troops in the region, have no choice but to pull back. And as they're pulling back, they leave their cover and they get hit even harder. But that leaves a gap in the line. The Ukrainians have to fill the gap with more men and more men and more men. Until eventually they just break. And that's what seems to have happened here. Except instead of a small break. Where it's sort of over time and they just can't hold it anymore and it just becomes too tenuous to hold. Instead of that, it seems like there was a, a route that happened where the front collapsed much more abruptly than what we've seen usually. And okay. so we saw some rapid gains by the Russians here in Lysitschansk. And one of the things that I've been seeing coming up about the fighting in the Donbass is that this is basically the heaviest most urbanized region in ukraine these are some of their major major urban centers with the sprawl to them like you have plenty of places to hide and defend yourself because of all the urban sprawl and there's forests and there's hills and there's rough terrain and once you get past the donbass in the eastern part of ukraine you get out into the flat wide open and so as we're seeing this grind where Ukraine is just slowly but steadily pushed out of their most defensible positions. Because not to mention, they've been entrenched in here since 2014. So these are their best defended positions uh, in terms of man-made defensive structures, trenches included. And as they're being forced out of the Donbass, I know in earlier segments, I said that they... That Russia took the entirety of the Donbass? They have not. But they're taking it now. And they've nearly liberated entire oblasts of Luhansk and Donetsk. And thousands of Ukrainians are either dying or surrendering. And these are Ukrainian troops, thankfully, and not Ukrainian civilians. Which is just another thing. Just a reminder that the Russians are going easy here. And so we can all just, at the very least, if we're this is going to be a war, we can take solace in the fact that there aren't needless civilian deaths here, but it seems like as the Ukrainians are being pushed out of this eastern part of their country, they're losing the terrain advantage, because at a certain point, they're going to be in the wide open of the stepland, the flats, where a lot of their farms are. And once they get pushed out, well, then that means the rough terrain is in the hands of the Russians. And if in what is probably the closest thing to a fair fight the Ukrainians are going to get, they can only seem to lose ground to the Russians over time with tactical withdrawals and gains here and there on the, the heat of the battle. But over time, they're just getting pushed back and they can't take areas where the Russians dig in themselves. But the Russians can just sit there and artillery spam the Ukrainians until they can't hold the positions that they have. So in as close of a fair fight as the Ukrainians are getting, they're losing. They're being pushed back. But at a certain point, they're going to they're gonna be the ones in the wide open, the, the, the flat terrain, and the Russians going to have all the rough terrain. And once they get to that point, the closest defensible position, as I've mentioned before, once you get out of the Donbass, is the Dnieper River. If we're looking at an east-west axis, because there's, there's marshes and hills to the and forests to the north, but the Russians are pretty, they're not moving much in the north. It's the south we're looking at, although maybe the Russians could get active in the north if they really wanted to. But from an east-west axis, the next defensible location is the Dnieper River. But another point was brought up, and most of these th- uh, points I'm talking about are coming from the Duran in Alexander Mercurist, where he brought up that at the rate that the Ukrainians are losing troops, they might not be able to properly hold the line beyond the Dnieper if they're losing troops at this rate. And I mean, if they, if they pull back now and set up a defensive line, they could do it. But if they keep losing their troops to this attrition, this grinding siege warfare in the East, and they're inevitably being going to get forced out of those defensible positions, and they have to do the maneuver where they defend the Dnieper, if at that point they don't have the troops that they have now, because they won't, not with the way the Russians are doing, conducting the war, they might not be able to hold the line, even with a really, really good defensible position that the Dnieper River gives them. Imagine... Imagine pulling back across the Mississippi River or the Danube. Like, it's big. It's a really big river. And it's... You need a bridge to get across it. It's really difficult. It's almost like conducting a a mini amphibious assault if you don't have a bridge. So it's really good if you have the men to man the line. But if you lose them all in the Donbass, well, then there's going to be gaps. And if there's gaps in your line, well, then even... The Dnieper can't save you. I mean, the Russians already have a beachhead in the south. Uh, a beachhead. They've already crossed the river in the south. So they can already get across. But you still have that hope. You still have the ability to, at the very least, minimize their ability to do anything in the south. It's not they have a very, very huge beachhead. They just hold the mouth of the river. But if they're losing troops like this, they won't be able to hold. And if they can't hold, then once they lose in the Donbass, well, then the war is essentially going to be over. The All meaningful resistance will have collapsed. And I, I'm just interested in seeing how this goes and how exactly it plays out. I have made clear that I think Russia is going to win. But we're seeing more and more uh, stories like this, uh, the fall of this city, the fall of this city, or the fall of this region. Ever since Mariupol fell, we've been seeing report after report after report of major Ukrainian centers be falling to the Russian hands. We've also gotten stories of Ukrainian counterattacks, but those counterattacks haven't brought them lasting gains. They're still losing. So... And this is in the, the rough terrain region of the the country. So what happens when we get to the farms? What, what happens when you get out of the Donbass and it's the land is flat and it's good for tanks and motorized vehicles? Will the Russians then decide to use Blitzkrieg? Or will they continue the slow and steady events? Who knows? But it's looking like meaningful resistance on the Ukrainian side of things is collapsing because they keep committing troops to the Donbass instead of pulling back. And this might end in a disaster for them, the likes of which we all expect it to happen in the beginning of the war. Although, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but at the very least, we're keeping it to military losses primarily. And it'll be interesting to see if by the end of this, this'll be the, if that trend continues where more military deaths instead of civilians, That might make this the first war since World War I, to have a ratio like that, where more military people died than civilians. That'll be very interesting to see, if that is the case. And it might, hopefully, set precedent for future wars, where it's purely a military-versus-military conflict, instead of a people's war, where the regular folks are themselves targets. We can hope for the best. At the very least, that would be a positive outcome of this war. But we'll just have to wait and see. That's Ukraine. Uh, last week, Supreme Court Justice Stefan Breyer retired, and he will be replaced by Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, diplomats from Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan have met, essentially for a resolution in which they have said that no NATO or Western naval vessels will be allowed access to the Caspian Sea and NATO military personnel in general will not be allowed access to the Caspian Sea. And the Caspian Sea is the large body of water to the southeast of Russia. Uh, if you look at Iran, if you find Iran on the map, it's that body of water directly north of their capital. There's the Caspian Sea. And you see that all the countries involved Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan they all have access to the sea. Russia actually has a canal that links up their rivers, because they have rivers in the Volga and the Don. Those two together, they have a canal between them, and allows them to go from the Black Sea to the Caspian, and Caspian to the Black Sea. So what this resolution does is it basically means that Russians have a de facto dominance of the Caspian Sea, and, well, really, um, almost a guaranteed dominance. They already have the de facto, but they now have an almost guaranteed dominance of the Sea. With the only potential challenger being Iran. So that's interesting. And it does hint at Central Asia and even the Caucasus uh, being very much within Russia's sphere of influence. Now, I have said as much for quite a while now, but it's nice to have things to reaffirm where I stand instead of me just, you know, speculating on what I think. But that's, a, that's solid evidence that they are more in line with Russia than they are with, say, the, Uni- the U.S. or Europe. And that is very interesting when we talk about Russia's plans for the former Soviet space. And we'll get into some of that later on. Although for now, it's just economic development and integration. But that's Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan. Uh, Ukraine says that they need $750 billion for their economic recovery plan. Uh, so now they want a trillion dollars. They want, after all the billions we've given them already, now they want uh, basically three quarters of a trillion dollars. This is what happens when you give a mouse a cookie. And I bet, I am very willing to bet, that my politicians here in the United States will be big enough suckers to give it to them. Speaking of those suckers, uh, Joe Biden has promised another $800 million, That's with an M this time, so it's smaller. $800 million he's promised to Ukraine. Uh, probably going to end up being more once Congress gets involved. So, you know, it's just nice that we're doling out our entire GDP on this one country, you know, a country that is, last time I checked, not a state in the U.S., not an ally, not, no defense guarantees, no defensive, you know, you know treaties, no military pacts, J- just another country, you know, just another country, we're just we're just handing out billions and trillions of dollars to, I guess, I know, yeah. I'm pretty sure a lot of that's being laundered right back to the United States, but, uh, Hey, we gotta stand with Ukraine now, don't we? <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, all this money. All this money. And for what? For what? I mean, it's not like we don't know that they're going to lose. But that's the narrative, is by the mainstream news. But for what? Why do we need this? Well, we know why. It's a military-industrial complex. And they need themselves a war, and they need an enemy to justify their existence. And Russia and China are great, quote-unquote, enemies for that role. Even though we're the ones going out of our way to start these conflicts with them. But, ugh. It's so pointless. People say the war is pointless. Oh, the war is very much not pointless. The Russians are going to gain huge once they win, but it's pointless for us to fight it. What are we going to gain out of this? What do we what do we gain from losing in Ukraine cuz none of us are committing anything, anything close to what Ukraine would actually need to win the war. So if we're not going to commit all the way, which makes sense for us not to do, and by us I'm talking about America specifically then why are we even involved? And that's the crazy thing. We're always involving ourselves in these things that we're not fully committed to. And we're shocked when the outcomes are not the way we want them to. But it's it's strange that we can give out all this money to a foreign entity. We can give out all this money to a foreign entity. But you're a criminal for saying that maybe, just maybe... We shouldn't do that. You, suddenly you're you're against humanitarian rights and you know all these other things. You're against women's rights, and you don't you don't care about other people. and it's like, no, I just think that we shouldn't be giving out uh, seven hundred and fifty billion dollars to other countries as and most other people would use the current state of the economy as the crutch. Even if America was paradise and heaven on earth, I still wouldn't give them the money. That's not theirs. Now, if people want a donation drive to Ukraine, go on ahead. But these are tax dollars. Tax dollars from Americans, if they're going to be spent at all, ought to be spent in the United States. Preferably on physical, durable things that we can see and feel. Tangibles. Like infrastructure, industry things like that but alas i am a one of a kind when it comes to thinking like that everyone else argues over which countries we should be giving the money to i don't think we should be giving the money at all but uh that's what uh biden wants to do wants to give them 800 million it'll probably end up being more when congress gets involved but we'll just have to wait and see uh we have chile on the verge of a new constitution a whole new constitution and the vote's going to be held on whether or not to ratify it in september We have president lukashenko of belarus accusing ukraine of having attacked belarusian military facilities in a recent missile strike conducted by the ukrainians probably trying to target the russian troops there but uh since the russians are in belarus it's an attack on belarus and now they've opened the door to the belarusians getting involved completely instead of just allowing passage of russian troops and that would be a military disaster for the Ukrainians who are already losing, even though they're fighting really just on one front right now. They do not need the additional weight of the Belarusians here. But that might just be what they get if they're not careful. Or maybe the Belarusians just go for it anyway, because of something else we're going to talk about this episode. But we'll see. Uh, the EU claims to be preparing a plane, uh, not a plane, a plan. There we go. They're preparing a plan to go without Russian energy. Now, how exactly are they going to do this when even France is struggling with energy costs? Uh, France, a country who is powered majority by nuclear energy, struggling because they can't get access to Russian natural gas. If France is struggling, I have no clue what the rest of the EU is going to do, but maybe they can impress me. Maybe they can, but I have a strong feeling they won't, and we're gonna, this winter is gonna be very interesting in Europe, but we'll see, we'll see. Again, I'll always leave the door open for me and my my ideas being wrong, but I don't know about those Europeans. Uh, We have Iraq, who is now mediating talks between Iran, Jordan, and Egypt. And this is significant because Iran and Egypt severed their ties back in nineteen seventy-nine during Iran's Islamic Revolution where they overthrew the Shah. They haven't they haven't had ties ever since, but now they're mediating talks they're talking again. So even Egypt is starting to come around to the new political reality that Iran is back on the map and they're a major player. And in some cases, a major power as well. They are the dominant power of the Middle East. I'll keep saying it. Uh, I'll keep saying it. And it's very interesting that Iraq is the one mediating these talks and not, say, Qatar. But I guess that just goes to show the, the length of the friendship between Iran and Iraq. And how far Iraq has come since they got invaded twice by the United States. So, uh, things are shaking up in the Middle East. (laughs) Much to Iran's favor, and probably to Israel's panic. But we'll see where things go there. Sweden and Finland, in other news, and this is pretty significant as well, Sweden and Finland have renounced all affiliation with Kurdish PYD and PKK groups and have vowed total solidarity with Turkey and the Turkish people. So, in short... They have sold their soul to Turkey in exchange for Turkey allowing them to become NATO members. And this, in the process, has set the precedent that bribes are now an effective way of getting what you want out of an alliance whenever a unanimous vote is required. And I imagine some clever EU statesmen are taking notes. But we'll see. And that is very interesting. And I, I said that that might have been a possibility. Although I did love entertaining the idea that we might see Turkey get kicked out of NATO. And we, that would have spawned a whole slew of new messes to clean up and deal with. But, uh, this possibility is interesting in and of itself. Because, like I said, it now undermines the fabric of the entire alliance. If we can just use our leverage to negotiate bribes out of the rest of the alliance. Well, what happens the next time there's a crisis? Will the alliance come together or will you have certain splinters in the alliance that say, we're not going to go along with this unless we get X. That's great that you want us to go along with you, but unless you give us Y, we're not going to do it. Is that what we'll see from now on? Or will we just see that out of Turkey moving forward, where everyone else is just going to have to look the other way when Turkey conducts its military operations in northern Syria? Perhaps even in the eastern Mediterranean. We will see. This will have consequences. And considering that they're, they're not the consequences I was speculating on, but now that it's happened it'll be really interesting to see what happens here there's a whole lot of interesting stuff happening this time around this last week but all the more things that I can talk to you about so that's Sweden in Finland and yes so that's the rapid fire news for today and we'll get into the meat of the episode in just a moment Alrighty, let's get into the meat of the episode, and we're going to start with a nice story. Since we were talking about Ukraine so much, we're going to talk about this. That is, Ukraine has accused a Russian cargo ship of carrying stolen grain. Uh, That is, grain which has been harvested in the parts of the Donbass and southern Ukraine, which are currently under Russian occupation. Grain harvested in those regions, which are loaded up on this Russian vessel, Ukraine is accusing of Russia having stolen that grain, which technically they're right, because Russia stole the land that it was grown on. So, that's the accusation here. Now, Russia has naturally denied these claims. However, Turkish customs officials have detained the cargo ship in question at the port of Karasu which is on the northern coastline of Turkey, the Black Sea Coast. So, Turkey, within uh, this situation here, they have promised an inspection of the ship to see if Ukraine's claims are true. Now, these are uh, interesting developments, to say the least, and there are multiple things that we can take away from this. Uh, Number one, it's uh, interesting that this happened at all, because Turkey usually doesn't, like, stop the trade going through the Bosphorus. They usually just let it go. And they have certain treaties that force them to do so, which is why they're building a new canal on the other side of the city, which will be theirs and theirs alone, and they can control. And they'll probably find an excuse to put the boss for a straight under, uh, maintenance for the next, uh, oh, I don't know, 99 years. <laughs> I don't know if they'll actually do that, but if they're going to make a new canal, then it would make sense to, you know, put the other one out of commission so that you can force, force, uh, some traffic through the other canal, which you can probably grab, I don't know, a toll on. <laughs> like, you know, how when you're driving a highway, you can get a toll, well, you're not the one collecting the toll, the highways, but they could do something like that. But it's interesting, first and foremost, that they've even stopped this vessel, because again, Turkey usually doesn't do that. So the fact that this even happened is interesting. Uh, the other thing that one of the other things I should say that we can take away from this is that Turkey is. Very significant, and that significance is continuing as this war goes on. I mean, they were, if we think back for a little bit, they were a mediator back when Russia and Ukraine were conducting peace talks. Turkey was a major roadblock to Sweden and Finland joining NATO and got themselves a bribe out of the process. And not to mention all... Of the black sea-based trade from not just Russia and Ukraine, but from Georgia and Romania and Bulgaria all has to go through Turkey and the Bosphorus Strait. Because that's the only way they can go through to get to the the wider world. Otherwise, you have to do it by rail and road, which is more expensive than doing it by water and sea-based transportation. So their significance in this war, in this period of time, has continued and even grown in some ways. And I guess it's probably more accurate to say that their significance is much more noticeable since the war began. Because they've always been there. They've always had this power. They've always had this leverage. But it's grown in some ways. Ever since the war, ever since Russia joined the war in Ukraine, and that grew into a proxy war between Europe, Britain, and America against Russia. So, uh, essentially, NATO. So now NATO needs Turkey to cooperate when they're trying to gain allies, and Turkey now got a bribe out of it. They got the renunciation of those Kurdish militant groups. At the same time, they're playing both sides (laughs) because they're not ceasing their integration and their trade with Russia. They're continuing their trade with Russia. It's only in Europe that the sanctions are going through. It's only in America that the sanctions are going through. Turkey's not going along. They are playing both sides here. And since the Russians are on the winning side here, it's to their benefit to continue as well. So Turkey is going to come out A major winner of this war. Right alongside the Russians. And Turkey is technically on the opposite side of the Russians. And that's crazy. I don't know if they're doing this on purpose. Well, uh, they have to do some of this on purpose. You don't just accidentally bribe. (laughs) Accidentally get a bribe out of NATO. For the joining of two other states. But. Does Turkey, does the Turkish government realize just how much power they've gained? Because if so, they're using it spectacularly. They're going to be a major winner out of this. And it it really just makes you think back to the days when they controlled the spice trade. I mean, if you look at how much oil is going to be coming through the Middle East and going through the eastern Mediterranean, if Turkey's able to wrest control over that, using their NATO membership as leverage to keep, say, France, to keep France off their back end, well, then they basically will control the spice trade, except the spices are going to be oil. Uh, oil heading to Europe, that is. They can't control the oil heading to China. That oil has nothing to do with Turkey, but they can control if they have control of the Eastern Mediterranean, they can control a, a good string of the manufactured goods coming out of China and lots of East Asia, which go to Europe. Because right now, people are still using the Suez Canal instead of the the Northeast Passage, which is basically going along Russia's northern coastline, which needs icebreakers. The Russians are working on that, and they're they're taking advantage where they can. But most of the traffic either goes through the Red Sea or by rail uh, through Russia and Turkey. Well, not Turkey yet. But the Belt and Road is gaining steam, especially in the Middle East, where they basically have every country they need to establish a proper land connection between China and Europe running straight through the Middle East. They have Pakistan, they have afghanistan they have iran they have syria i'm pretty sure they have iraq pretty sure they have iraq i'll have to check that but turkey is also more than willing to go along and even with just syria you have access to a port on the mediterranean sea the belt and road is here and all it's going to take now is the infrastructure projects to catch up The political agreements are already here. So once all those rails are laid down, Turkey will emerge as a major player. uh, A very, very major, very major player. Just because of where they are. They're in the middle of the world. They'll control the flow of energy from the Middle East into Europe uh, for those Europeans who don't want to be dependent on Russian energy. And they'll also control the flow of primarily Chinese, but also East and Southeast Asian manufactured goods. Coming from Asia, Turkey will be able to control the flow of that going to Europe as well. So you get a double whammy. And what does Europe have going the other way? Components, but really just design work. Although, you do have German and Italian cars. So... They have that, but the real heft of this power is going to be in Turkey throttling and controlling what comes out of Asia and the Middle East going to Europe, and not so much what's coming out of Europe going the other way. But that's how it was with the spice trade. So what we're starting to see here, which is becoming more and more apparent every year now, is the significance of Turkey's physical location. Their physical location has given them so much leverage and given the projects and trends at hand that leverage is only going to continue. I mean, they, they were a mediator between a war that has nothing to do with them, right? Now they're, they're detaining ships and no one's condemning them right now. Not even Russia is condemning them for detaining this cargo ship. And they're going to do an investigation. They stopped a ship and they're going to board it and then let it pass through a body of water that they are under treaty to allow to be neutral, and no one's questioning, no one's stopping, no one's raising any and any fuss about it, and it's crazy. They they've bribed Na- they've gotten a bribe out of NATO, even though they're inside of NATO. Uh, and just a couple years back, they got a bribe out of the EU where they were going to hold those migrants there. So the migrants didn't go to the EU and then that broke down and it took Greece and Bulgaria building a wall to keep them in Turkey. Turkey's position is getting stronger by the year. I'll say that much stronger by the year. And I imagine that trend's going to continue. So that's another thing we're seeing coming out of this uh, war is the importance of Turkey, the continued significance of Turkey. But another major thing, that I'll say we can see coming out of this situation with the the Turks boarding uh, after detaining a ship. They they detain the ship, they board it, they're gonna inspect it. Even though the Strait of the Bosphorus Strait is supposed to be neutral. What we're seeing from that, and this is the third and final takeaway that I have, and this is a pretty big one, is that. We're seeing yet another chip fall off the pillar of freedom of the seas. And I say another because up till now, we've already seen Iran seizing South Korean oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. We remember that just last year. The, the, The oil tankers coming out of Arabia, they're en route to South Korea. Iran... Stops them and seizes them and South Korea dispatched a destroyer And I asked the question back then what would have happened if that destroyer made it all the way to the Middle East before Cutter Intervened and got everyone to back down What would have happened then? There would have been war Over this tanker It would have literally been Peter Zion's tanker war prediction come to life except Actually, no, not even accept anything, it, it, well, except for the Iran and Arabia being at war. It would have been Iran and South Korea, and that's just crazy to even say uh, a war between Iran and South Korea. We saw that happen last year. We saw Israel bombing and seizing Iranian cargo ships uh, and oil tankers, which were heading to Lebanon back when Lebanon's economic crisis hit a couple of months back. We saw Israel targeting those ships, and well, uh, Iran couldn't do much to stop them. But it was happening, and no one stopped it. No one, not many, protested. But it happened, and I can even remember way back in 2020 when a French destroyer checked Turkey's attempt at setting up drilling operations in the Eastern Mediterranean. and they, they sent destroyer. the destroyer. Turkey had to back off because they were trying to assert control over the Eastern Med. And they had their corridor of exclusive economic zones with them in Libya. And that's how they were justifying their actions. France said the destroyer They had to stop. But what we're seeing... And uh, all that leads me to believe this is that what we're seeing is that we are we're witnessing the end of freedom of the seas, especially as it has existed since 1945, with the end of World War II, the, essentially as a part of the Pax Americana, which was imposed after the war. Uh, the Bretton Woods, where America patrolled the sea lanes and guaranteed freedom of the seas and guaranteed that everyone's shipping would be safe and could get to wherever it needed to go. Essentially the basis for the modern world as we know it anyway, that American-led order is underpinned by freedom of the seas, which is protected by the U.S. Navy. But in all these instances, the U.S. Navy is absent. Absent. And so, there's not the order. You, if the U.S. Navy is not there, then you can't have the order which is, the U.S. Navy is needed to impose. And the U.S. Navy seems to have no intention of being there for instances like these. America is not complaining about the, a Russian cargo ship getting detained. America didn't stop France and Turkey from getting into it. America did not stop Iran from seizing that, vest, that South Korean vessel. It was, Qatar. it was Qatar who had to intervene and mediate. America did not stop Israel from bombing and shooting at those Iranian cargo Vessels going to Lebanon. If the American Navy is absent on the job, well, that's component one for the death of freedom of the seas. Now, you're going to have freedom of navigation exercises in <clears throat> in the South China Sea, unfortunately, because that's that's apparently where America's interests are now, and we're just we're just making the shift. So we can focus on the real threat, which is China. But if you don't have the American Navy, that's one half of the equation for freedom of the sea is gone. And especially if the American Navy is unwilling to even make the attempt at doing the job. So then when you have instances like these, you just have chips. You just keep chip, chip, chipping away. The actions of... So far, primarily Iran, let's just be honest, primarily Iran is the main agitator chipping away at this pillar, which is freedom of the seas, but now we have Turkey without even really realizing it, well, this time around, Iran and Turkey have been the, the big players here, but Turkey, without realizing it this time around, is also playing into the destruction of freedom of the seas. They have detained this vessel, when usually they just don't do that so as we have seen freedom of the seas since 1945 we're witnessing its evaporation it's slow and steady chipping away until it doesn't exist and not to mention lithuania blocking the land-based movement of goods from russia to their kaliningrad enclave and forcing russia to resupply kaliningrad by sea Given what we've been witnessing if we take this trend of freedom of the seas Dying which is what we're watching very slow very steady and always in very small chips falling away But if we take that trend and apply it to the Kaliningrad Question which has been created by the Lithuanians? How long Uh, until even that route, that sea-based route, the resupply that Russia's using for Kaliningrad. How long until that's threatened too? Because we're witnessing shipping becoming a deliberate target for not even belligerent countries. Lithuania's not at war with Russia. Iran and Israel, I would argue, are at war, but technically they're not. And I, I know for a fact, Iran is not at war with South Korea. But if you look at these actions being taken by adversarial, not even belligerent, but just adversarial nations, how long until even that, this sea-based resupply route that Russia is using to get around Lithuania's blockade, the land blockade, how long until even that sea-based route is threatened? because NATO doesn't seem to be de-escalating anytime soon. All we see is escalation. Although there have been attempts at reining in Lithuania, but nothing, you know, significant enough to actually do something. What happens if freedom of the seas really does kick the bucket? We're witnessing chips falling off. But eventually, when you have enough chips falling off, the pillar can't stand anymore so what happens in the future who knows although it looks like piracy might make a comeback particularly state-sponsored piracy people people forget and my myself was unaware until like last year of how big a role state sponsored piracy played in the world up until just about the 1700s like it wasn't until the 17 and 18 and 1800s really that state sponsored piracy stopped being a thing but that was only 2 to 300 years ago which means that an era where state sponsored piracy is not a thing. This era we've been living in is the aberration. This is not the norm. This is the aberration. So, what happens if freedom of the seas kicks the bucket and we go back to an era of state sponsored piracy? As what we're seeing, what we're getting a masterclass in from the Iranians, what happens? when that becomes the norm, well, it's going to be extremely dangerous to do anything by sea unless you have a navy to protect it. We're going to see a naval arms race not even out of a necessity. Well, it'll be out of necessity, just not in the way that people would imagine it, where, oh, that guy's building a navy, so I have to build a navy too. Oh, Germany's building uh, three battleships, so we, the United Kingdom, need to build six. Not... It won't be an arms race in that sense. It'll be, we have 200 commercial cargo ships and they have to be protected. We, we're not going to be able to do that with the Navy we have today. We need a bigger Navy so we can protect our trade because if we don't have trade, we can't have our industry and we can't develop. So we need more ships. We need more ships We need each individual... We we might even see cases where some countries just... We can't have that many ships. We can't maintain them all. We need each ship to be of higher quality so that we can protect more trade vessels with fewer ships. And you get big ships of the line again. We could see something like that. And in a world like that, where there's pirates and then countries with really powerful navies who may or may not like each other, uh, well, we know for a fact some of them don't, well, in an era like that, what's stopping you from using your powerful navy to destroy the shipping of your adversary and kill them economically? I'm looking at Israel and Iran right here. I'm looking dead at Israel and Iran. What would stop them from doing that? What would? They're they're already fighting each other in an undeclared state of war. Would they just start targeting each other's shipping and say, we're not fighting the war, we're just asserting control over our region of the water? That makes shipping incredibly dangerous. And if shipping is incredibly dangerous, not only do you need a powerful navy to protect your shipping... But in many cases, you're just disincentivized to send anything by water unless it's hugging the coastline, in which case you're probably going to have to pay someone to let your ships pass at a certain point because the traffic is just going to get huge. And in a world like that, land-based trade is suddenly the way to go because the cost and the the risk associated with sea-based trade would just become so exponentially greater, I mean, I'm looking at a map of the uh, the general area around the Middle East right now, you're looking at Europe, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Caspian, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, there's a lot of countries to go by if you want to get anything from, say, what, Germany to India, just Germany to India, not even going all the way to China or China to Germany, there's a lot of countries in your way. And if we're looking at a multipolar world on top of that, in an era of state-sponsored piracy, that's dangerous. That's actually dangerous. Like, you could be at peace with somebody, but the pirates from some other faction happen to see your craft, and maybe they take your stuff by mistake, and they just didn't know. They just mistake you for someone else. Are they going to give you a shit back, or are they just going to loot half of your stuff and let you go? What happens then? Will you ever see that ship or that crew again? What if you have independent private contractors who aren't affiliated with any state where they need men, so they're going to steal your sailors to work on their crew? Now, like, it's, it's crazy to say and crazy to think about now, in this era that we live in, where that's just not a thing, not really, unless you live in Somalia. But when you think about the broader historical picture, where it is only in these last, like, 300 or so years, and I say or so because even in the American Revolution, as late as the 1770s and 80s, you had privateers. We were paying privateers to take their civilian boats, strap strap cannons to them, and go out and raid British shipping. As late as the 1770s and 80s. So it was really, we can shave off 100 years on that time frame to the, just make it the last 200. Just the last 200 years. Where piracy was extinguished. And probably we can shorten it down to 150 as well as that. Well, maybe 170 since we're in the 2020s. Bring it all the way back to the 1850s. And, but that's an incredibly short period of time. If we're going back to a multipolar world, on top of a world of state-sponsored piracy, where the water is just not safe, land-based trade becomes the way to go. And suddenly, the importance and the power of China's Belt and Road gets magnified a thousandfold. And all that energy coming from the Middle East trying to get to Europe is going to go by land any way it can. Or... Because pipeline isn't going to be safe. Pipeline's not going to be safe. Sure, you can you can lay it under the water. Oh, Someone can drop a bomb down there. A depth charge. Someone can cut it. And suddenly, you're dead out of luck if you're on the receiving end of the gas. Energy suppliers in the Middle East and in Central Asia are going to be looking for ways to get their energy to either Europe or Asia by land. That means Turkey. That means Russia. Russia has their own energy that they're going to be getting to Europe by land, which they already do. Turkey is the best way to go for Middle Eastern countries to get their energy to Europe by land. China, the workshop of the world, the most industrialized nation on the planet. How are they going to get their manufactured goods all the way to Europe and Africa if the water is dangerous? They're going to do it by land. They're going to do it by rail, specifically. Well, you can take it all the If you're going to go to Europe, you can go through Russia. You can go through the Middle East, through Turkey. Again, you can go drop your stuff off in, say, Jordan. And then from there, it's a short trip to Egypt. And then from Egypt, you can go to anywhere in Africa. So we're looking at major winners of a world order like that. Being in the Middle East, the the middlemen, quite quite literally middlemen, where everything coming from one part of the world has to stop there, get taxed, and then get sent on its way to the other side. And since there's going to be a, I'm seeing a massive trade deficit coming out in the future in favor of the Asian powers, because they manufacture, and Europe is, and even to a... Extent as well. America. We've outsourced our manufacturing. This is going to be a world dominated by Asia. Precisely because they manufacture. And it will be the Middle East. Who benefits from. Tariffs. And taxes. On the movement of those goods. Through their territories. With Turkey. Being uh, uh, the chief among those winners. Russia is going to reap some of those rewards as well. And. That's that's so crazy to even speculate about in a world where we have freedom of the seas. But alas, I guess the world really does change. But I'll, I'll move on from that. I've gone on a whole tangent about a different world order, which we might see in our... Well, we probably will see in our lifetimes, but it'll be really wild ride to get there. But... We also have on today's agenda the Union State advancing and accelerating because Putin, in a recent press conference, stated that the Western response to the war in Ukraine is pushing Russia and Belarus towards unification. He said, quote, It is easier to minimize the damage from illegal sanctions. It is easier to master the production of demanded products develop new competencies and expand cooperation with friendly countries. End quote. Now, he's primarily referring to Belarus in this statement, and considering that the two are under similar sanctions and that the Belarusians were compliant in allowing Russian troops to move through their territory when Russia went to war, it's pretty believable that the two would come together Closer together, especially now. And I believe that by the end of this war in Ukraine, we might see the two on the verge of a complete union. But I have a strong feeling that outside of Belarus, outside of the BRICS countries, outside of Iran, and outside of Venezuela, who are all friendly, I have a strong feeling that the former Soviet republics are going to be very much included in that uh, cooperation with Russia uh, that Russia currently seeks. Which, for those countries, is probably closer to integration and eventual merging and annexation than anywhere else on the planet. And Belarus is probably going to set the example for how that's going to go about. Which is probably why the Russians are so careful and delicate with it, because they want it to go as smoothly as possible. You, you And I guess Ukraine's going to be the other side of that equation. You you can join us the Belarus way, or you can join us the Ukraine way. <laughs> the Belarus way is much better for your people and your economy. The Ukraine way is uh, uh, will cripple you for the rest of your life, and you'll never be able to fight us back again. So which one do you want? Do you want the Ukraine way or the Belarus way? Oh, you know, we'll take the Belarus way. Oh, that's what I thought, okay? (laughs) We'll start with Kazakhstan. (laughs) That's how I imagine this is going to go. That'll be very interesting to see in political speak instead of my crude geopolitical shit-talking speak, but it'll be interesting to watch nonetheless. But alas, the union state of Russia and Belarus grows closer to a complete union. And just as I predicted, or well, yeah, if it does come to pass that quickly, I should say, then it will be as I predicted that Russia's going to exit the war from Ukraine and they're going to be one Ukraine and one Belarus bigger than they were when they went in. And that's my not so humble prediction. But uh, we also have Brexit, and it's sort of strange to be talking about Brexit this far after it happened, but something interesting popped up here as well. I I told you this week, this last week was full, chock full of interesting things, which just makes my job so much easier. But Germany and Ireland have recently come out against a new customs law which is making its way through the British Parliament. The ministers of foreign affairs for both Germany and Ireland, uh, Annalena Baerbock and Simon Coveney, Coveney, uh respectively, have each stated. Well, they issued a joint statement where this say that this is oh, goodness. They have said quote, there is no legal or political justification, or for unilaterally breaking, an international agreement entered into. Two years ago, end quote. So they've essentially denounced what Britain is doing, but that leads the question: What is the agreement that's being broken first off, and what is the law that they're denouncing? And the reason I've set up this segment that way uh, is because that's basically what I came away with when I read the article. Uh, it didn't tell me what the law was or what exactly was being what exact uh, protocol and agreement was being broken, so I had to dig deeper, and I just decided to reflect that in my writing here, the notes, but alas, I did a little bit of digging, and I've found that the agreement which is being broken, and the law that's being passed, are as follows. They're referring, uh, this is Germany and, I- and Ireland, they're referring to the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is the law that's making its way through the British government. It hasn't been passed yet, but it's making its way. And this would allow the British government to selectively enforce and not enforce certain parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, it, the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, is the international agreement. Which was agreed to between Britain and the EU when Britain actually left the EU. When they actually left, they had this agreement with Northern Ireland, um, which is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is that Northern Ireland and Ireland, and this is a really rough summation, but Northern Ireland and Ireland would have free movement of peoples and goods between them so that you wouldn't have. Uh, The fear was that if you put up hard barriers between the two, you'd end up with another war there, because this is sort of an extension of the Belfast Agreement, which is uh, brokered between Ireland and the UK, back when Ireland fought a war, and and that basically got us the separation between what we call Ireland and Northern Ireland, and I'm saying Ireland a lot more than I would like, but (laughs) that's the only way we can do this so the belfast agreement set the rules for this then the eu when england well when the uk and ireland both became parts of the eu uh that was sort of submerged within the eu it was still the belfast agreement but then when the united kingdom left the eu ireland did not leave northern ireland is a part of the uk so it went with the uk when the uk voted to leave but ireland because they are still a part of the eu they're still subject to the eu border laws and immigration laws and if the uk is not on the inside of the eu then that means northern ireland and ireland now have a hard border between them. Which is why this was a major point that the negotiations, the Brexit negotiations, got hung up on back those a couple of years ago when this was all new. And the agreement was, basically the Belfast Agreement, uh, except you would have minimal checks on the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. And instead you would have more, more restraints between the UK And the the British Isles, I'm specifically referring to, between the British Isles and Northern Ireland itself. And that spawned a a bunch of discontent within the UK because you're essentially giving up your sovereignty over a part of your own country. That's the way it was looked at. And that's technically kind of what it was. But fast forward a couple years later, now the issues starting to be addressed a bit more and because of the way it's because of the way the issue is there's going to be a loser and a winner here uh and that loser looks like it's going to be the eu although it could be the uk but uh looking at the the history of the two since brexit happened uh one of them underperforms the other and not that the other is incredibly spectacular uh, britain Britain isn't the the brightest these days, and but the, the same can be said for most of the West, but the EU in particular is incredibly, incredibly unimaginative when it comes to dealing with the UK, and to the point where the UK sort of runs rings around it without even trying, just because the EU corners itself with its own policies and then has to sit in the mess it makes, uh, just... Going, thinking back to the vaccine situation, if you remember, way back five million years ago, when <laughs> when we were all talking about uh, the vaccines finally coming out, and when I say finally, even though it was that they, they came out in the same year that the pandemic hit, but when the vaccines came out and everyone was trying to get their production up and going and their vaccine rollouts up and running, you saw the United Kingdom; they had their ducks in a row, they got their vaccines and they were vaccinated at higher rates and faster they reached those higher rates faster than the eu but the eu had one of those vaccine manufacturing uh, facilities in the netherlands and some of those vaccines were going to the uk so the eu tried to stop the flow of those vaccines And try to get the Netherlands to that company in the Netherlands to break the agreement because the EU didn't negotiate their vaccines before you know they came out. Now, granted, you you can say that that was smart and prudent of them not to so go pre-ordering vaccines. Uh, I I try to tell my friends not to go pre-ordering games anymore, but some of them just they just don't learn. But you, you can say that that was technically smarter than to do not to pre-order vaccines that they didn't necessarily know were going to work. I mean, it's not if like they had access to them. But in that specific situation, the vaccines were effective enough. Well, they satisfied people's appetite for the time. But Britain had theirs pre-ordered, and they were getting their shipments, and the EU was stuck behind. They didn't allow the individual nations within the EU to negotiate their own deals. They wanted everything to be handled by the EU bureaucracy. And the EU bureaucracy dropped the ball. So instead of in some countries in the EU getting vaccines and the others not, and those countries in in the EU who got the vaccines could maybe give away the surplus to other countries within the EU, because, you know, they have free movement of goods within the EU. So you could have taken advantage of that. The EU did not. The EU administration state dropped the ball and you ended up with a situation where the EU was completely outperformed by the UK when it came to vaccinations and vaccination rates and the rate of which the vaccines were rolled out. A country, a fraction of the size of the EU with a fraction of the population, completely outperformed the entirety of the EU and humiliated them. And because the EU made it a competition, they were the ones who made this competition in the first place, uh, talking about the what Brexit did to the UK and how it messed with the UK and made the UK this, this, and that, and the third. They made a, comp- a competition and then lost the competition they started. That they created. Not only did they start the competition, they created the competition and then lost. And it was a massive humiliation on that front. And if that is anything to go by, then... They do have a good deal of things to be afraid of when it comes to their this border here. Because Britain is now going back to the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland with this bill. This Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Which essentially gives themselves more control over how to enforce and not enforce certain parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So... What this does is it allows them to either increase restrictions or decrease restrictions between Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, as they see fit, so long as they don't prevent the free movement of peoples, which is a part of the Belfast agreements, and uh, and that's really it. So long as it's between the two Irelands, like <clears throat> if you want to go from Ireland to the UK, you would you would have to go through the customs and you know have a visa. But if you wanted to go from Ireland to Northern Ireland, which is technically a part of the UK, because of the Belfast agreements, you can do that. So as long as they don't violate that, and really, uh, as long as they don't violate that, then they can really do whatever they want with regards to restrictions on the border. So effectively what this bill is doing is it's taking power away from the EU, the power over the Ireland-Northern Ireland border, And putting it back into the hands of themselves, really. It's making it a bilateral thing between Britain and Ireland, as it was before with the Belfast Agreement. Instead of what it is now, where it's the Northern Ireland Protocol, because Ireland's in the EU. And what that does is it effectively... It effectively... How do I... It's... Hmm... Like, it's not as complicated as my tongue-tiedness is making it seem, but it's just a bit of a mess to try to explain. So essentially what this bill is doing, if it ends up being passed, is it will circumnavigate those restrictions in a way that benefits the UK. Because the way they got around it was to limit the trade in goods between the UK and a part of the UK, which is Northern Ireland. The mainland British Isles are have restrictions between them and Northern Ireland, even though they're the same country. For the sake of an easier border between Northern Ireland and Ireland-Ireland. But what this bill would do is it would circumnavigate those restrictions in the other way. In that you ease restrictions between Ireland and Northern Ireland, and... Well, that means you have, and only really restrict things going from Ireland, which is in the EU, to the UK, uh, the British Isles, the the big one, not Northern Ireland, instead of restricting what goes from the UK, Britain, to Northern Ireland, which could then go to the EU, which was kind of how they did things before so they would prevent things coming from the british isles going to the island of ireland but now what they're going to do is they're going to enable themselves with this bill to basically take uh whatever they have on britain and put it in northern ireland if they want irrespective of what the eu wants and irrespective of where that those goods are going to go in ireland or the eu and instead they're just going to flip the restrictions so that it's from ireland to mainland Britain, so instead of restricting themselves, they're going uh, goods going from Britain to Northern Ireland. They're going to restrict goods potentially going from Ireland to Britain, and they're going to stop restricting themselves from going to a part of their own country, and sending goods from the British Isles to Northern Ireland. So that that's a It's not as convoluted as it sounds. Uh, If you're looking at a map of Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Britain, it'll all make sense. uh, If you look at it as uh, you're listening to this. But, um, and the way that that undercuts EU power is that it enables British goods to slip into the EU via Ireland. While at the same time maintaining trade restrictions between the EU and ...the British Isles proper. And again, if the situation with vaccines is anything to go by... ...is any measure of economic efficiency... ...between the two political entities, that is the UK and the EU... ...the EU has a lot to worry about. They have a lot to worry about. But it'll be very, very interesting to see how this goes. I mean... The EU, the way it functions, is, and the reason this is a concern with regards to the border, is because the EU system is—it depends on external protectionist barrier. It depends on a external protectionist barrier, I should say, against goods coming from other countries uh, on the outside, and then it relies on a free trade system between countries within the EU. So a hard outer shell to protect the soft gooey center. And that's how the EU system works, which is why the border and the issue between Ireland and Northern Ireland became politicized as a thing between the UK and the EU. Whereas before it was just Britain and Ireland. But Ireland's in the EU, so that's an EU border, which is why they're obsessing over it. it that's a hard border in is kind of where they are i mean the eu in certain circumstances is very concerned about its border not so much when it's migrants coming from the middle east or ukrainians and <laughs> but in certain circumstances like russians or british people or northern Irish people they're very concerned about their border so they want to keep it intact Again, in certain circumstances. And this just happens to be one of those circumstances. But if the British have access to the EU through Ireland, because they can control the border as they see fit, then goods going from Northern Ireland to to Ireland can go anywhere in the EU. And if Britain is not going to restrict itself... ...from sending goods to Northern Ireland, then that means anything and any product coming from Britain itself... ...can go up through Northern Ireland into Ireland proper, and then from there it can propagate out throughout the entirety of the EU. And that essentially do, it gives Britain the benefits of the internal free trade network of the EU without actually being in the EU... And that's ultimately the problem here. Not so much that Ireland and Northern Ireland are going to fight. They're they're not. The British are going to keep that border clean. It's just that they're not going to restrict themselves from that part of their own country. Which places the burden of establishing the border, the EU border, on the EU. Because if Britain's going to do this, then the only way they can have that hard outer shell is to either A impose restrictions between ireland and northern ireland violating the belfast protocol and the north ireland protocol by the way in one fell swoop or they can de facto they can put up a hard barrier between themselves and ireland even though ireland is an eu member they could put up a a hard trade barrier between themselves and force everything that comes out of ireland to go through customs which would essentially cut Ireland off from the EU and make them a de facto non-EU member. In which case, they'd more easily integrate with Britain. So, when I put it to you like that, instead of the, the convoluted way that I explained the specifics of this whole affair, suddenly, yeah, I, I, hopefully it's easier to see why this is a big problem for the EU. Britain gets to reap the benefits of the EU's internal free trade zone without being in the EU. But if the EU tries to stop those goods from getting there, they have to either impose a border between the two islands, violating international law themselves, or they have to basically treat Ireland as though it was not a part of the EU, in which case Ireland goes to the UK. Naturally, it just falls into the UK's economic orbit so the EU's on the back foot here which is why this is a problem so uh, even now so even now 6 years after Brexit the Brexit referendum and 3 years after that landslide victory of Boris Johnson's pro-Brexit government Brexit is still proving itself a problem for the EU and I'll be honest this is really entertaining to watch. <laughs> very, very entertaining. This has been a, quite an eventful week. Uh, hopefully we get more of it so I can keep coming at you with all this lovely, lovely news. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Oh, the world is changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it. Together. Now, I've been your host, High Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.